From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. It is a really big day in Soccer Made in Portland. It feels like it, at least from from a writer journalist perspective. Oh is it? Is it really? <laughs> well, it's, it's a the, lot, a lot going on for sure. It's the sure. ninth anniversary of starting preseason. <laughs> Yes, it is. It is the first day of preseason. Um, Timbers went uh, pretty long. You you were out there the whole time. I think we went inside. We're talking to Gavin a little bit. Oh, I wasn't you. out there the whole time because <laughs> y'all went inside and Gavin was talking. And then I was all of a sudden like, wait, I should be in there too. <laughs> but thanks to somebody from the Oregonian, most of these interviews are on YouTube. Yeah. So I was able to go back and find the, the 90 <laughs> seconds that I missed. But really, that's probably going to be what occupies so much of this conversation because yeah. Gavin Wilkinson was... I don't want to say unexpectedly forthright in what he was saying regarding the pursuit of two marquee players, but it's really weird to me that a president of soccer, soccer a general manager, just kind of comes out and says, oh yeah, that stuff, that speculation you've been hearing, yeah, that's what we're doing. <laughs> that's pretty much what he said. Yeah, yes, it is. And we're definitely going to get into that. Let's start a little bit with the training camp and, and what we saw out there today, the, the little bit we did. Um, they did go at least an hour and a half or, or longer today. Yeah, 90 minutes. Say. Um, so pretty good run out there. It was raining the whole time. Mm-hmm. It was a very, very Portland day, uh, of course. So I'm sure all the players coming back from vacation just loved that. But I'm sure, I'm sure they did. <laughs> they did seem to be, you know, out there ready to compete. I mean, Jeff Adonella said that he's as fit as he's ever felt because yeah. it's 45 days since they played an MLS Cup. I, I mean, this hasn't been much of a break. We talked about that on the sideline. You know, people who have been out there uh, don't know this, but kind of the independent media gets sequestered off into a corner (laughs) where they can see the field. And then the people like me kind of linger wherever we end up lingering. So I was talking to Ross Smith during the practice, and we were talking about the level of practice, what they were doing, comparing it to what we saw in Tucson last year. And like you just hinted, uh, the lack of time that they've been away we hadn't really talked about that before. We talked about the shortened off season if it was going to, as if it was going to be uh, a physical demand. I think, it, like you just hinted, it didn't allow these guys enough time to have their base fitness levels go down that much. Yeah. So the type of stuff that we were seeing at practice today, I don't think they really got into that until like a week into practice last year. Uh, all the conditioning that they were basically doing today was in the context of drills and to me, everybody looked at it like they're at a pretty high level. Yeah, I mean, I think the benefit of the short off season, particularly since, you know, at this point, we, we look back at 2015 to 2016, the Timbers lost a lot of key players. They weren't able to replace them. The mechanisms to sort of handle a roster after winning MLS Cup weren't what they are today. Gavin Wilkinson said the, the team is not going um, through that this time around. There's more TAM and, and general allocation money in the league. It makes it easier. So that that's not really an issue. Um, so I, I think on the positive side, they're coming back after a short offseason. Uh, they got a little bit of rest, but they're still fit. They can start off at a, a point that's further along than they did last year. The other side of that is, is they do have to manage their bodies. I, I mean, the, the over time, the short offseason could sort of catch up with them and, and could lead to injuries or bur- sort of a feeling of just burning out too early. Um, And that's something the club's going to have to manage. But I definitely think what we saw today is they're starting at a a completely different point than they started at the beginning of preseason last year. And it was encouraging, too. Encouraging from the perspective that the players don't have much of a learning curve this year. The coaching staff isn't new. We as people that are learning about new players, new coaches, there isn't as much of a learning curve for us either. A lot of the faces that we saw today, while there were some new, they're mostly surprises. Uh, people that are back that we didn't think would be back that are training with the team that we didn't know were going to be training with the team. Sure, Claude Dielna was out there. It was his first day actually wearing green and gold. But for the most part, this group looks very similar to the group we were left with in December. Yeah, I, I think some of the keys that you sort of just hit at it, I mean, it, some of it had been out there, but uh, Konechny is coming back on loan. That hasn't been made official. Uh, Steve Clark was re-signed. Andres Flores was re-signed. Both of those guys are back. Lawrence Olam and Roy Miller were in training, but I, I 
think that's more of two guys that aren't on the roster in training, not necessarily a trialist thing. Uh, we'll see if that changes, but but it, the Timbers have done that a lot in the past where they just yeah. have other play, players that are around that they have been good players for the club. They just, if they don't have a team, they let them come into preseason Yeah, training. just two guys that people like. Last year, yeah. we knew we know that Jorge Porlaza was training with yeah. T2 for a little bit. Uh, less known, Khalif Al-Hassan trained with T2 for a little bit before signing with Oklahoma. And, I mean, Rory and Lowe are very well-liked. So yeah. uh, not to get anybody's hopes up, I think they're just kind of training until they figure out what their next steps are going to be. Yeah. Um, so I think that sort of answers Jace's question, unless unless there's somebody I missed that you saw out there, are there are there any trialists uh, with the club? I, I mean, there's a few non-roster people there. There was a few T two people there, but as far as I saw, I didn't see any actual trialists. No, there was one academy player played for T two a little bit last year. Carlos Junior Aguayano was there. Uh, a number of the draft picks from yeah. last Friday and the following Monday were there. Uh, I don't know what their, the future holds for them, but they seem unlikely, like we talked about, yeah. to be in the <laughs> major league soccer roster. A couple people that weren't there today. Renzo Zambrano is going to join the team in a little bit. Uh, the internationals that are in their national team camps, Jeremy Abobasi, Marvin Loria, Davi Guzman, they weren't there today. And then the new Slovenian keeper, Aljaz Ivacic, was not there today either. Well, I think the bigger thing, like you hinted at already, that came out of today really was, um, or maybe the more exciting bit that came out today, it was just the roster move information that sort of Gavin gave us and confirmed some of the rumors that were out there. Um, we going through a little bit last week, like you said, uh, the club signed uh, Claude Dielna. That was known, but um, not official. Say, same with the goalkeeper. That was not official last week as well. We actually didn't talk much about him. Um, uh, so actually that might be a good place to start. I mean, yeah. he wasn't in training today obviously but Gavin talked a little bit about sort of the expectations for him I I think um, Gio may have as well but where do you see him sort of coming in and fitting into the depth chart are we who who are we talking about the goalkeeper the goalkeeper okay I thought we were talking about Dielna and I was like no no he was there today you know I really don't know I don't want to sit here and pretend like I am an expert on Slovenian soccer (laughs) Um, I do know that Slovenia has a couple of other very good goalkeepers at their international level and while the person that the Timbers just signed has been called in before he hasn't been capped but based on the clubs he's played for, the level he's played at, I really don't know. You're talking about somebody who has been able to start for a kind of a Europa League qualifying level team out of the type of league that only gets one or two teams into UEFA competitions. Um, I don't know. It, this always irks me when I listen to other podcasts, not in, just in soccer, but any sport. And they're, they're talking about things as if they, they know this point guard from Coppin State that went second in the NBA draft. Let's just wait till he gets here. But I, I'm interested in what you think about just the pure idea of not only bringing in a goalkeeper, but Gavin Wilkinson reiterated again today that these people that are being brought in are being brought in to compete for starting jobs. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the goalkeeper position, Gavin Wilkinson said they brought him in uh, because he's 25 years old. Uh, He's has that experience um, competing at at a professional level. He's um, shown that he can do that. And he's a guy they believe could potentially be capable of competing for a starting role here, whether that's now or or down the road uh, sort of remains to be seen. He said it was a little bit of an experiment, Um, but they kind of wanted to have a younger guy since both Adonella and Clark are a little bit older to sort of not have that age gap. And Wilkinson reiterated that he felt that Kendall uh, McIntosh still has a little bit of development to go before he can really compete for that starting job. So I think that's why they brought him in. Um, I mean, that reasoning makes sense to me. I I would like to see, you know, after so much time at T2 and and the performances we've seen from Kendall McIntosh, sort of what's sort of holding him up from taking that next step. I I think that's a little bit bit disappointing that he wasn't able to, at this point with Gleason leaving, sort of just move into that role. The Timbers clearly think he has more development to do, and it sounds like he's going to be going on loan. Uh, So I think that's a little bit disappointing that they haven't got him to this point. Uh, but given that that's their feeling, it, they needed a third goalkeeper. And to be able to bring someone in that's proven, that's younger, that could potentially compete for a starting job and, and over time or, or even this year, it seems like a pretty good move. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. But the logic behind it seems sound, or at least it seems as sound as any of these other acquisitions that the Timbers are making. Because with the exception of right back, where there's an obvious hole in the depth chart right now, they don't need bodies anywhere. 
So when they're going out and getting players, these are kind of opportunity signings, really. They're looking for ways to improve the team. And really, like we saw with the acquisition of Jorge Villafaña last year, not at a need position at the time, if an opportunity presents itself to find improvement anywhere, they're going to do it. And I think that probably leads us into what are the bigger talking points of the day, yeah. the right-back pursuit and the designated yeah. player pursuit. Uh, let's talk about right-back first because it seems like that's a little bit more straightforward. I thought the interesting part today... Um, after Gavin, as Gavin Wilkinson was answering Paul Danzer's question, was the profile of the right back that we found. And we kind of discovered that they're looking for somebody that can kind of be the yang to Zarek Valentin's yin. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the profile I don't think sounds too different than Alvis Powell, but but I think maybe it's <laughs> going to be someone Gavin that... Gavin explicitly yeah. said for somebody that gave us what Alvis gave us. You know, an athletic player that can get forward in the attack. I, I think Gavin said in like four different ways in one sentence, a player that can get forward in the attack and contribute in the attack can be impactful in the final third. So that's very clearly the top, right. uh, one of the top priorities they're looking at. it. I mean, of course, someone that can be uh, good defensively as well, but they want someone that's going to be more of an impact growing forward. And that's just not something Zarek Valentin has been. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, they're, they're probably going to want someone overall that I think brings a little bit more consistency than Powell or, or else if they felt that they're looking for the exact same profile as Powell, then why would you move Powell to begin with, right? <laughs> uh, but this is a player, as Wilkinson said, that they expect to come in and, and compete for a starting role. And, and I would expect that... Um, whoever they end up settling on, it is someone that could potentially beat Zarek Valentin out for that position and move Zarek to more of that backup utility guy across the, the back line. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. I, I mean, Zarek won the spot last year and, and did well for the Timbers, but um, it looks like they're going to be bringing in someone that can really try to compete for that starting role. I'm glad you said that because it doesn't make any sense whatsoever for them to deal Alvis Powell just to go get somebody who exactly is Alvis Powell. I think we talked a little bit last week of kind of the asset management aspect of dealing Alvis Powell and the idea that maybe that asset needed to yeah. be dealt or else it would start losing value. I think the right back that they're going to go out and sign is going to be at least in the scouting profile appreciably better than Alvis Powell. And if you just think about the targeted allocation money, general allocation money that the team has accumulated over the last 13 months, the the lack of spending in other places that they're going to use that for. They've already said they're going to go buy a uh, we're going to try to buy an attacking player who is going to be a designated player, not a TAM player. So they've got this big pile of money to use on one person. I think the right back signing yeah. is going to be noticeable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what do you think? You know, Zarek Valentin gains the starting role next year or last year, does pretty well for the team, was sort of an important leader for, uh, for this team, too. And his ability to speak two languages, uh, I, I think, was helpful. It looks, you know, like they might be bringing in his replacement right now. I, I mean, do you think this is the right move for the club? Yes, I think that this is the obvious hole on the depth chart. They need somebody who can balance out the play that Jorge Villafaña gives them on the opposite flank. They need somebody who can give them kind of that wingback's verve if Giovanni Savarese wants to play three center backs at any point again this season. Uh, but more than anything, I, I think that, like Gavin Wilkinson said today, Zarek Valentin has strengths, but he also has parts of his game that based on the circumstance, based on the opponent, you might want to have somebody that's a little bit more like yeah. Alvis Powell there. But I think this ties into Liam Ridgewell too. Because last year, a huge amount of Zarek Valentin's value was the intelligence and leadership he brought to the field. His ability from a fullback's position to provide some of the organizational leadership that you normally see from a center back. And now there's only so much a fullback can actually do in that position. But with Liam Ridgewell gone and no other obvious vocal leader back there yeah. yet, Zarek Valentin's strengths from 2018 are going to be just as valuable in 2019. And I think how much he ends up playing is dependent as much on how the center back situation evolves as it is on who comes into play right back. Yeah. I mean, I think that leadership is going to be something that could be a little bit of a question with Liam Ritual leaving it. And Zarek certainly provides that. Larry Smobiala, I think, is a little bit quieter, but him and both him and Dielna both have the experience and can be leaders on the back line are probably going to be pushed to, to be that um, even more than maybe at least in Mabiala's case he has been in the past I, I'm not I can't speak as much to uh, sort of Dielna's leadership style um, 
But yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think if a team that has a right back better than Zarek Valentin starting and has a player like Zarek Valentinus or your utility guy on the back line, that is a very, very good situation to be in. And I think it is the situation the Timbers want to try to be in. Absolutely. All right, let's go to the acquisition that seems to be capturing a lot of Timbers uh, fans' imagination. That's the idea of a designated player attacker. I think before we were thinking about it as a number nine, Gavin Wilkinson seemed very clear that he wanted to call it an attacker, largely because they're targeting players that can play multiple positions. And they don't want somebody who, if Jeremy Obobese asserts himself, is going to not play. They want somebody that can play out on the wing also. The big news to me was Gavin Wilkinson letting public uh, something that you know internally we've been dealing with the idea that this could be a record signing yeah. for the Timbers. Um, to me, that's a very clear statement of intent. Lucas Milano, Sebastian Blanco, those are the record signings right now, uh, reportedly in the $5 million range. Yeah. Obviously, MLS never confirmed such things, but that reporting is out there. So we might be talking about a $7, $8, 9000000 million signing here, and uh, that, that can buy you a pretty good player. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a player the Timbers are going to need to get right if they uh, end up pulling the trigger on this one. Uh, he did confirm also that it's two players that they've sort of narrowed the search down to that they're in discussions with. That's what Paul Tenorio also reported last week. Two young designated players, so players that seemingly could come, a player that could seemingly come in now and perform, but then also grow with the club over time. Um, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> this is definitely an exciting move. I. I I think you said right back's the one area of need and, and, and everywhere else is sort of just working to make the team better. I think finding a proven goal scorer is a, an area of need that this team has to address. And if, if they don't address it, I am would go well, into the season feeling this. a little worried about the attack. I mean, this team made a proven goal scorer at, at Ford. Yeah, they made a cup final and Audi did help with that. And so did Armenteros in the regular season. But they made it through the playoffs without either of those guys. I mean, yeah. look, if we're if we're creating a want list of things that the team needs, then yes, like a proven goal scorer is probably number two on that list. But if they went into the season after acquiring a right back without getting their striker, I mean, this team is still a competitive team. I don't think it's a glaring hole, but it's obviously, like maybe a couple of other places on the roster, a place where if an opportunity presented itself, they should go out and get somebody. Now, the club clearly feels a little bit different about this because they're about to make a record signing or they're going to try to make a record signing in that position. So that shows you a little bit of how other people in the organization might consider this a, um, an urgent need, but I look at it a little bit different. If the names that the team is pursuing and Paul Tenorio put out Ezekiel Ponce from Roma there who has uh, on his loan stints in Greece and other places has performed very well and um, is a highly regarded young Argentine attacker. If these names weren't there, I think, or if similar names weren't being presented to the team, I think they, like Gavin implied in December's press conference, would kind of keep their powder dry. Yeah, I mean, I think if they weren't, there's no reason to waste a designated player spot unless you think you have the right player. Whether that, whether bringing in a TAM level forward or something would be a replacement. I, I mean, if they weren't out pursuing a designated player and they were set, that's not going to happen till summer. I think it would have made sense for them to go after some forward, some veteran that has shown that they can score um, consistently from that position because this team is still very reliant on, on its midfielders to score goals. Jeremy Bovesi has shown well, um, and I think he's going to continue to develop, but I don't think he's proven he's going to be a consistent goal scorer yet. Lucas Milano, Espria, they've had moments, but again, I, I do think on that sort of uh, just at the forward position, this is a team that was lacking a proven goal scorer. So whether that's a designated player or whether that they had decided to go the route of a TAM acquisition, I think that's a need that they had to address. Now it looks like it's going to be a designated player, and if this is a player that they can hit on and it turns out to be the right move, and clearly they're putting in the investment to try to ensure that it is the right move, I am really excited about what this team is going to look like. I, I am too. I guess, I guess this is just you know semantics, really. I get... A little bit, I don't get anything. I just disagree when people look at the Timbers and look at the Thorns and go, oh, they're not getting goals out of their number nine. They need a different number nine. Well, both teams have players at the next level of attack that are capable of scoring double-digit goals. And 
ultimately, they both have attacks that were good enough to get them to where they needed to go. Both went to cup finals. And obviously, the teams would be better if they had number nines that scored more. But I don't think just because a team has a number nine that doesn't have an average goal scoring rate compared to the league means that's a need position. In these leagues, you have a finite number of resources. Now, the Timbers have put themselves in a position where they can put more resources towards a number nine. I think a lot of that is because of the roster building that went on last year. So many of these pieces that were brought in, and I I definitely see people going, what happened to Christian Paredes last year? What happened to Cascante? He fell off. Uh, Polo wasn't good enough. But all of those signings are still on the roster. Samuel Armentoros is really the only one that's not here anymore. Really filling in the depth. Um, the signings of Marvin Loria worked, and Renzo Zambrano is a longer-term signing. He was signed in the middle of 2017 worked. Uh, because all those have worked, they can kind of put all of their money's, money resources into one basket and go after a striker. So, um, But yes, let me ask you this question. If they do get a striker that is, let's say, performs at like 75% of Adi's peak, somebody that can score 13, 14 goals... Where does that leave the Timbers in the MLS pecking order? I mean, it's it's a hard question. The, the this team, you know, finished fifth in the West last year. Um, they have had these surprise finishes where they've gone to first. They've never really looked like a, a team from start to finish that's going to be competing for the Supporters Shield um, during their time in MLS. But they have finished first in the West twice. Um, if they have another really good goal scorer, if Blanco can replicate. Uh, what he did last year, and we don't see a massive drop-off from Valeri. Uh, and then you're looking defensively, if Dielna or Tuiloma or Cascante steps up, this team could be really, really good. I, it's hard for me to put sort of a position on it right now. Um, I, I want to see this team prove that they can be a more consistent than they've been um, through many years uh, where they don't have these, I mean, MLS is a long season, but where they don't have these really long, these stretches where they just kind of lose it and then they come back better. I, I, this team needs to be more consistent. They're going to have to manage 12 games on the road to start the season. That's going to be really difficult. Um, but yeah, if they get another goal scorer, that's going to be a consistent option for them. And, and Blanco and Valeri are, are still where we, we want them to be at. They're going to be really, really difficult to stop in the attack. Yeah, just giving the team that was resourceful enough last year to make it as far as it did another option, another way to win games. I'm... I don't know. I don't think there's any one acquisition that a team could probably make to distance itself from the pack at the top of the league. We're talking about the Atlantas and the Red Bulls and Sounders and Kansas City and probably the Timbers too. But I think maybe that gives the Timbers more ways of dealing with those four other contenders. Um, Let's see. What other news jumps out from you from uh, training today as far as people you saw, anything? I mean, to me, we've been waiting for this day to come for so long. And not to repeat myself, the fact that it just was like so kind of business as usual, I was kind of sitting there thinking that, you know, it's almost, I don't, I don't want to say remarkable, but it is worth sitting back and and taking note of how Giovanni Savarese has just created an expectation of the mood in the team. It's just, this is what it is. And there's no highs, there's no lows. I mean, this training could have been... It felt a lot like the the beginning of that two week stretch before the Kansas City series, where it's just like, hey, like we're here, we're doing our thing, everything is business is normal, no highs, no lows. It just is what it is. Yeah, I mean, Geo did a really good job of bringing the team together towards the end of last season. Like I think we were saying, they were as united as ever, and obviously it helped them go on that run. Now he's in year two. There's none of this teams getting to know Savarese. They're trying to figure out his expectations, um, things like that. They're players that aren't bought in. I, I mean, if the players are still here, they're, they're probably bought in to his system, and, and they know what it took to get to what uh, happened last year. Obviously, there's a few new faces, but as we talked about, they're really, at this point, aren't that many new faces. Um, even, you know, Loria and Zambrano are, are coming up from T2. They've been in the system. Uh so I, I think it will be really interesting to see what's going to change in year two for Savarese, uh, especially with the 12 games to start on the road. I, I think the fact that it's year two, the fact that this team's core is pretty much the same and, and they've been through this together already, it could help uh, a, a lot as they're trying to navigate that stretch that they're not maybe dealing with the, the slow start they dealt with last year that, that could some 
that you can say just based on the formation probably had a lot to do with Savarese being a new coach. Absolutely. Let's deal with some of the questions that are on our list here that kind of dancing around some of the issues that we've uh, blown through here really quick. And then we'll talk about national teams here for a little bit. Uh, We talked about goalkeepers and Heath explicitly asked something that you didn't go on record on. Uh, Who do you see getting the starting role at goalkeeper? I I mean, at this point, I think Jeff Anella is going to be the starter goalkeeper. Uh, That could change. Um, But I would expect first game of the season, um, I, I would be willing to bet on it that Jeff Adnell will be the goalkeeper. I think if this changes, it will be over time. That Savarese is not going to pull that number one spot from Adnell on day one. Mm. I, you know, just going back to what I said, it's just really hard to comment on these things until the guy's actually here and we see him train. I mean, he can come in and immediately we'd be like, wow, this guy is really good. How did, how did the Timbers get this guy? So I think, as you said, got to consider Jeff Adnell a number one for now, but that kind of doesn't mean anything until everybody's here. Uh, another question here on our list. Sometimes uh, we like to create the questions for ourselves. Uh, one was, when do we expect these moves to happen? Gavin Wilkinson said, uh, look for the next seven to ten days for these things to happen. For the right back. For the right back, yes. Not specifically on the designated player. Yeah, I think the designated player one. I was about to say it could happen sooner to my knowledge, but the thing is, and this is what was so weird about somebody on the draft broadcast last week saying 95% there. I don't even know what that means. Like 95% there would mean like the player has come into the front office, has a pen in their head and is about to sign a contract and then go out and take care of their visa issues. I, I just, I don't know. Like when you're talking about something of this level, where you are talking about a seven or $8 million player. Like things can change really quickly. Yeah. Those players are usually in pretty high demand. Um, your seven or $8 million bid that you think is good could the next minute be usurped by an $8.5 million bid that the agent got by leveraging your bid? Yeah. So who knows? But um, I think if Gavin Wilkinson is willing to talk about these players in public now, these two players he alluded to uh, as far as the target for an attacker, uh, they, they must be getting pretty close. Um, another question that we have on here, what other moves could we still expect before the start of the season? Jamie, is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet? I don't. I, so I don't think there is at this point. I, Gavin Wilkinson, we we asked that about asked that to him today, and he essentially said these are the targets they're going after. That there's nothing else uh, really on the table. I mean, that could obviously change. Uh, we saw the reports out there. Uh, you know that there was some interest in Milano from Argentina. I, I confirmed that the Timbers are not about to loan Milano out, um, but it. If some if someone came in for a great big offer on Milano uh, to buy him, I mean, I think the Timbers would consider something like that. And if he moved, then they would have to make a move. Things could change quickly is the point I'm trying to make. Um, but as of now, yeah, I, I think it's just going to be the designated player and the right back. Um, I think there are other positions that there were sort of questions about and uh, going into the offseason. I, I, think some- I heard you ask a Twitter question today about defensive midfielders. Uh, you like summoned the spirit of Chris Reifer <laughs> during the scrum today and started asking about defensive midfielders. Well, I, I just kind of asked if they were going to make other moves and, and why they prioritized the moves that they did. And I mentioned mm. central midfield and winger specifically. Yes. Yeah. And then Gavin did go down the winger depth chart. Although I think you and I both agree that, you know, that getting an attacker that can also play out there in addition to play forward seems to make sense. Uh, you also confirmed something that absolutely did happen that the team received a bid for Sebastian Blanco from the Middle East that was very quickly and uh, <laughs> I would say in the um, most direct and shortest way possible declined yeah. quickly. Um, but I think we're always hearing rumors around Sebastian Blanco, both off seasons that he's been here. There's been rumors of him going back to Argentina. We saw two different rumors this year. To my knowledge, there was nothing to those rumors. There was, however, um, something to the rumor that people saw over the last couple of days that there was interest from the Middle East. But selling Sebastian Blanco would be a, a drawing board move. And like you have to go back to the drawing room and consider your team's long-term plans because yeah. Blanco is somebody who as far as his age and his skill level is kind of the successor to Diego Valeri. Yeah. So if you're going to lose Sebastian Blanco, you better bet, get a pretty nice check because you're going to go have to go out and get another Sebastian Blanco. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean, it, we confirmed that those rumors were true, but I never, <laughs> minute I saw those, you know, I didn't think they were actually going to move him. I, when I saw those, I thought, wow, finally a Sebastian Blanco rumor that actually is kind of true. <laughs> Cause the other ones that you see regarding Blanco are just, uh, hyperactive Argentine media most of the, the time. And so 
you know, from my point of view, when I see a rumor that's actually true, I kind of in my head go, ooh, that's interesting. Like, no, people aren't just blindly throwing darts at boards here anymore. But going back to the central midfielder, you said it's a Twitter question. I mean, I mean do you feel like the Timbers, that's a position that, that just didn't make sense for the Timbers to maybe look at? No, I don't think the Twitter discussion is without merit. Um, no pun intended there. I mean, he's not, he's not on Twitter anymore. Um, because when you look at things, yeah, um, it would seem like having a succession fan for Diego Chara makes sense. But I would counter that with something that I think maybe it was Gavin said today um, that I'd never heard him say before, but I'm biased towards it because that's how I feel too. There's no succession plan for Diego Chara. There's a yeah. reason why nine years of MLS has not produced a player that's like Diego Chara, whether you're talking about academies producing players or going out into the world and signing them. So the idea of going out into the world and signing a successor to Diego Chara flies into the face of what evidence we have about him. And that's not to say Diego Chara is the best player ever. He's clearly a very good player. But when Diego Chara goes, you got to, again, it's a drawing board move. You got to go back to the drawing board as far as midfield is concerned. Yeah, I mean, what Wilkinson said was essentially, if you want to replace Diego Chara, you have to spend a lot of money. And if you're going to spend a lot of money, that player has to come in and play. So if Diego Chara is still here, you kind of have an issue there. And from a salary cap perspective, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, So... Yeah, I think with Paredes, that's still an option they're looking at that they hope is going to take step forwards, take more steps forward this year. We saw at the beginning of last year that the, he was showing positive signs before sort of falling out of favor. He's still on the roster. They clearly think he can take those steps forward. And that's sort of the beginning of like some sort of succession plan for Chara in, in the way that they can potentially do it. Because like you said, most likely it's going to be just having to go out and buy another player. If they, in terms of the resources they have, otherwise it's going to be like a player like Paredes they hope is going to develop over time. So I, I understand the reasoning. I, I think it's a, a spot that we'd like to see the Timbers. It, it, because Paredes sort of fell out of favor, it feels like there's a lack in the depth chart. But I think it's sort of going to depend on how Paredes sort of recovers this year. And I think the thing that people... I think they overlook it about Christian for the best reasons because he came in, he started immediately. He was a big part of the first half of the season. And then he got passed on the depth chart as Davi Guzman regained his form as they found a role for Lawrence Olam as, uh, Russo Flores, uh, got kind of a foothold in the team too. Christian's only a little older than Marco Farfan. And if people are giving up on Christian Paredes or they have doubts about him, I would say to them, there's the same reasons to have doubts about Marco Farfan as there is Christian Paredes, which to me is no reason. Like These are young players that are going to go through their ups and downs, and I think Christian Paredes just has a really, really bright future with the team. Uh, you ready for some listener questions, or you want to talk about national teams first? Well, let's just run through the national teams okay. first, I think, and then we can hit a few more listeners' questions. Okay, so last week we found out that two Costa Ricans from the Costa Rican pool that we've had here with the Portland Timbers got called into their national team camp. Probably not a very big surprise that Davi Guzman got called in, although I think some Costa Ricans are going back and forth (laughs) as to Davi Guzman's value there. Uh, But the big surprise is somebody that hasn't actually played an MLS minute yet. He's played in U.S. Open Cup, but Marvin Loria essentially is a T2 player. (laughs) Not technically T2 anymore, but he's a T2 veteran that got called into the Costa Rican national camp. How surprised were you when you saw that he got his first senior team call-up? I mean, I was very surprised to see a player coming from that level and getting called in. I think it's exciting because the Timbers have been talking about how we've been hearing how excited they are about Loria and how everything I've heard is that this is a player that really could step in, if not this year, definitely in the next few years um, and make a real impact. And they believe that, that he's a player that can do that. And they haven't really had they've had you know Marco Farfan has done okay but the Timbers haven't really shown that T2 is this path that's going to lead to an impactful first team player um and the excitement around Loria is I mean it's definitely something to pay attention to I want to see how it pans out this year I I think there's we shouldn't be disappointed if if he doesn't get a ton of minutes this year Mm -hmm. um we should if it's not in the next few years, but yeah. um, these things do take time. But the excitement around the fact that Costa Rica is taking notice um, is an indication that this guy might be the real deal, a guy that can make an impact at the MLS level. 
I think Marvin's going to play a lot this year. I just wonder how many of his minutes are going to be starts mm-hmm. because he's just such a player, to, great player to bring off the bench at the end of games. He's a very versatile player, wide player, fast player, somebody that can really bother teams towards the end of games. But I, I want to build on something you said that they haven't shown, the organization hasn't shown that T2 can be a path. And, you know, I, I think that that's true. But I want to ask you, how many players have to come from T2 before we stop saying that? Because we've had Bill Tuiloma, Jeremy Abobasi, Marvin Loria, Renzo Zambrano. Bill was signed to the first team when he came in. He didn't play first team yeah. for half a year. Renzo's, Renzo Zambrano, Marco Farfan is going through the finishing school now. Maybe this year Foster Langsdorf starts getting more MLS minutes. Kendall McIntosh is in this place now where he's kind of a little bit above T2's level, but not ready to really... I want compete. the Timbers to have a player on the first team that was signed to T2 or came through the academy and is now a starter. One player. Jeremy Abobasi. Jeremy Abobasi, I mean, yes, Jeremy Abobasi is the best example, but he has been a starter for he's played, three months. He's played major parts of two yes, years at T2. Yes, Jeremy Abobasi is the best example, and Marco Farfan is probably the second best example, Right. In terms of players okay. that have come through G two, but I want to see Jeremy Abobasi developing into the consistent starter. I mean, Wilkins said they want to keep getting Abobasi minutes, but he also said the designated player is going to come in and play, and that might be over Jeremy, it might not be. I want to see what Jeremy does this year and what it continues into. He did really well last year, but I it's just I don't think the Timbers having resources to go out and get good players for the first team should reflect any reflect on T two. I mean, essentially, what you're saying is that. In this one scenario, and I hate doing this to you, and this is totally unfair. This is 100% unfair what I'm about to do, but I'm going to continue it because I don't want to cut off. You're saying because the T2 might not produce a player capable of beating out an $8 million buy at striker, that that's what you want to see. I think that's a high bar. Okay. I mean, positionally, Jeremy Bovis is in a tough spot because he's a forward. And and so the fact that they've been able to develop a forward and get him to this level is a really good sign. But the T2 still has more work to do. Marco Farfan didn't get didn't build off his first season like we would have liked to see last year. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about Marco the other day. It's tough for him because I think from the outside it is logical to say that Marco didn't push on the way that everybody wanted him to. To me, he's a much better player now than he was a year ago. But I mean, it's the it's the same thing we we're talking about in the middle of the year where I'm going, "Oh, uh Jeremy Obobasi and Foster Langsdorf aren't beating out Dyron in practice and Nobody wants to hear that. I think if you look at the T2 program and the academy program and you don't think this team is making progress, then then you're just not being fair. This team is clearly making progress. But yeah. I, I still think there are steps to be taken to the point where people are saying, yeah, this team has a good developmental pipeline and it's yeah. working and functioning and um, they're in exactly the place that they need to be. See, to me... T2 is at the point where, you know, I think every couple of years we're going to see a crop of players come through, three or four players. And um, it's always going to be difficult for a T2 player to win time on Portland's roster because as we're seeing with these offseason acquisitions, a lot of the best talent is not going to come from T2. It's going to come from the outside world. Yeah. And I think the issue is more getting the academy working. Now, Foster Langsdorf is obviously academy. Marco Farfan's academy. There's Blake Bodley at Washington. Uh, Junior Aguiano was playing today. There are some academy players coming through, but I think even people in the organization would admit that the academy is a project that needs to start producing more. To me, T2 is proving itself by giving the Renzo Zambranos of the world, the Marvin Lurias of the world, these players that kind of use this as an opportunity to be associated with this Timbers brand that they know the world over. But how from the bottom of the depth chart at T2, the organization is supplying Cameron Knowles' squad. To me, that's a, to me, that's honestly still a big question. Um, should we hit some listener questions? I think we should because there are a lot of questions again this <laughs> yeah. week and we should give them the, the attention they deserve. Let me throw the first one at you. Um, Jonathan touches on the designated player question that we were talking about in regarding attackers. He asks, why would the Timbers not target an older designated player at forward? Seems like a young DP is worse for a Bobasi's development. I think specifically, I mean, Gavin sort of addressed that, the fact that they're trying to get a guy that they can put on the wing if a Bobasi is in a position where they have, they really want to have him on the field. Um, so I think that's how they're trying to get around the not hindering a Bobasi's development. Um, but I just think if you can get a young DP for $8 million or whatever range it is in, 
you, you got to assume that player is already proven. It's not just going to be a young player that has to show that they can play here. So you got to assume they're already proven. And if they're at that point already as a younger player, then they're a player that can grow with this team over the time. They're not a player that is just a one, two year project. Uh, I, I just think the Timbers want, want a player they can build around for the long term if they're going to spend that much money on a designated player. And if they're younger, there's a greater potential to get a return on your investment yep. or actually make a profit on the player. I mean, to me, it doesn't matter. If Jeremy Bobasi is going to lose playing time, he's going to lose playing time. So from an organizational perspective, you'd rather it be to a younger guy than an older guy because that younger player has a greater potential to not only contribute into the future, but contribute at greater levels into the future, too, to keep improving. So. I completely understand people being worried about Jeremy Obobese losing playing time, but I think if he does lose playing time, you'd rather him lose it to another younger player rather than an older one. Yeah. Um, next question is from Mike. Mike asks, what are the Timbers planning to do to replace Ridgewell's defense and backline leadership? And we know what the answer to this is. I think the implicit question is, do you think Claude Dielna is enough? Claude Dielna, not Dielna. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I think... When he was playing in, in New England, there was a lot of promise that that you kind of saw there. And he's clearly a guy that has experience in MLS, has succeeded in MLS. He he lost his position in New England toward the end of the last season, but he's a veteran. Um, I think those are good signs. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if the Timbers are going to be able to replace uh, Ridgewell's leadership on the back line. That, that was a hugely important part of his game, just his ability to organize the back line. And he was a designated player when he came in just the level of defense he provided when he was at his best. I also don't see the Timbers just directly replacing that at the same time with Ridgewell's age, his, his, the, him being prone to injuries, the fact that the Timbers want to give Bill Tuiloma and Julio Cascante a, a chance to develop into long-term solutions here. At some point, the Timbers had to move on from Ridgewell. And I, I think this was, this was the point. Uh, but yeah, it, I'm not sure there could very easily be a drop-off on defense that is going to be noticeable because of uh, Ridgewell's absence. We can't sit here for a whole year and talk about how special Liam Ridgewell is when he's on the field as far as communication and intelligence and then act like it's so easy to replace the second he's gone. To me, the parallel here is Darlington Nagby's connective ability in midfield. You don't replace it, you deal with its absence. I don't think the Timbers really replaced Darlington Nagby's abilities last year. They just found another way to accomplish the task and in the back line. Although I think the goal with Claudielna is that he can bring some of that. He did wear the armband in New England for a while. I think the reality is they're just going to have to learn to cope with life without Ridgewell. And I mean, if a, tra- if a player truly is special, that's, that's how it goes. Just like we were talking about with Diego Chara earlier in the episode. <laughs> okay, let me throw another question at you from Tim. As the Timbers start preseason, which teams in the Western Conference have made the most impactful offseason moves? I, I think I was telling you about this today. I think one of the teams that has made the most impactful offseason moves, um, and I'm not sure if it's going to put them at the you know anywhere near the top of the conference, but I think it could put them a few spaces higher than they have been, is actually Colorado. Um which is not something I say very often. I, you don't think I say many positive things about Colorado. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think they've added Diego Rubio. They've added Kai Kamara. They've added uh, Benny Failhaber. They've added some veterans here. Obviously, age is certainly going to be a factor. These aren't long-term solutions. But they've added people that can produce in this league. And their attack was terrible last year. And now they have options. So, um I would be shocked to see Colorado suddenly jump to the top uh, of the West, although we saw that a few years ago, sort of out of the blue. So you never know. Um, But they're not looking necessarily like they're going to be the worst team in the Western Conference again or close to it. I think they probably were just ahead of San Jose last year or something like that. I can't remember. I think so. That sounds about right. (laughs) San Jose was almost historically bad. To me, I think this is a reflection of an MLS universe where there wasn't new GAM, well, new, new TAM added this year so we didn't get to see the replication of teams going out there and spending this new money that mls injected into the system there's a reason why the teams at the top of the conference look very similar to what they looked like last year is teams are having to hold steady the changes that they're making are around the fringes so colorado's made a lot of changes vancouver has made a lot of changes dallas had to go out and sign some impact players to me they're honestly not really on my radar to me i'm really more concerned about how Seattle looks when they have a full year of Rui Diaz and that can they replace Osvaldo Alonso and uh, can the Kim Ki-hee-Chad Marshall partnership take it to the next level. Um, In Kansas City, 
when they're going to try to insert like a Christian Namath back into the number nine role or um, Daniel Shalloway maybe improving even more. These are the type of things I'm looking at. I'm not really looking at these acquisitions that Vancouver and Colorado are making, to be honest with you. Maybe I should. <laughs> Let's go to the next question from Igor. Is this the Igor we all know? Yes. Okay. Um, Igor asks, not to take away from Geo, but how much of last year's success was due to Porter's legacy and was he given enough credit? I mean, I, we probably wasn't given enough credit just because I, I think at some point Porter's name just wasn't really much of the conversation uh, towards the end of last year. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think part of it does have to do with Porter's legacy. Part of it has to do with the players that came years before. I, I mean, coaches are a big part of it. Players are, are a huge part of it. Um, but Porter certainly came to this team in 2012 or after the 2012 season and turned what looked like a sinking ship, uh, you know, around, um, they won the Western conference that first year he was here. They won the Western conference in 2017. The team was certainly in a pretty decent position in terms of results, uh, when Porter left. And so Gio had a good foundation to build off of. Um, so yeah, I, I think Porter probably deserved more credit, uh, than he maybe got just because I don't think we were talking about him very much at all. Um, but it, it's hard to tell, you know, how much is on Porter, how much is on Gio. I, I mean, I think you have to give Gio a lot of credit for how he was able to bring this team together and where he was able to get them at the end of the year. I, I don't think that is really something you can put on Porter. Agreed. I think if Caleb Porter would have stayed, the Timbers would have had a successful 2018. But as you and I covered it, what the team went through over those first five to seven games, whether they should have put themselves in this position or not, they had to completely tear things down and build it back up again. So for me, it's hard to give, say that Porter deserves credit. I think in an ideal world, he would have deserved some credit because they wouldn't have had to tear things down and with that Dallas game, start building from the basics to where they got by the end of the year. But seeing the, the way the things went last year, knowing that Darlington Nagby had to be traded in the offseason, he was a key component. Fernando Adi was eventually traded early in the year. He was a key component to Porter's success. I, I just have a hard time thinking that last year was that, that Porter didn't get the credit he deserved for last year. I think he deserves more credit for what he left behind at the end of 2017. But it had to change so much. I just didn't see Caleb Porter's foot fingerprints on the team by the time it, it got to Atlanta. Shane asks, uh, we already talked about this a little bit. No, we didn't talk about this, but we talked about Christian Paredes a little bit. Uh, Shane says, why did Paredes fall out of the rotation last season? And what does he need to do to play a bigger role this year? So I kind of gave my theory a little bit about other players stepping up. From your point of view, what do you think happened with Christian? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Davi Guzman stepping up was a probably a big part of that and just wanting to have maybe more veteran experience towards the end of the year when you're going to the playoffs. I also think there's probably some stuff we don't know. And maybe that's just that he wasn't having the best trainings or, or his mentality wasn't in the right place here or there. And maybe it's not. I, I don't want to, you know, assume anything because I, I don't know. But I, I think this is the kind of thing that sort of happened behind the scenes. And it's not the kind of thing that's going to be made public. Um, and, and so whatever it was, whether it was just Davi Guzman passing him, whether it was that uh, Gio just thought he needed a little bit more development or, or just – thought there was a bad performance here or there. I, I think it came down to something probably pretty simple like that, and he's a young player. Um, and, and I definitely, in talking to Gio, don't think that he lost confidence in Paredes. And, and I do think the club thinks that he's a player that could play a bigger role this year. That's why he's coming back. And um, I, I think they're certainly going to give him the opportunity uh, to most likely be, you know, the player that comes off the bench. Uh, that's what they expected out of him last year. Uh, I think Chara and Guzman sort of return as the presumed starters there. Um, but but I think the club is hopeful that Paredes is going to see some real minutes this year. And the last question from Chizero or TJ Zero. Uh, how did Andres Flores get his nickname Russo? So I don't know the answer to this. I was hoping you might. Yeah, I do. So Russo is Spanish for Russian for people who don't know. And Andres Flores, as part of his uh, duties with the Salvadorian national team, uh, one time scored an own goal against <laughs> Russia. So that's how he got the nickname El Russo. Oh, that's, that's kind of sad. It, it's kind of sad, but thankfully Andres <laughs> is somebody who has a good sense of humor about these things and can keep things in perspective. He's somebody that is a constant call-up for El Salvador's national team. So uh, this one thing that has happened <laughs> that, in his career. That he gets to remember every yes. day of his life. Yes. So every, and, you know, every, 
it's not something where they only rarely call him Russo. They, they, they call him Russo. That's what everybody refers to him <laughs> as around, uh, around training. So um, the hazing culture that is sports never, ever relents. <laughs> Uh, speaking of hazing, it's time for our <laughs> annual mid-episode exercise in bringing the worst out of ourselves, the hot take interlude that's never quite a hot take interlude, but it is a good chance for us, us to get certain things off of our chest. Jamie Goldberg, you're going first. All right. I'll just start with uh, some news that we haven't talked about, which is this that on media day, I think over the weekend, uh, Diego Valeri, uh, I guess, based on what we saw reported on Twitter, said to some reporters that... Um, you know, he was still deciding where he was going to retire, whether it was back in Argentina or at MLS. That would have to be a family discussion. I asked him about that again today. Um, he said that he's just really not thinking about retirement right now. And obviously any decision is going to be a family decision um, at this point in his career. Uh, that does sort of run uh, contrary to what we've heard in the past for Diego has been pretty set. I'm going to retire on in Portland. Um, we haven't asked him about it in a few years. So it's not shocking that something like that might change or, or might be more of a discussion at the, at this point, given that he has other family back in Argentina as well. Um, but I'm just going to say, and I, I think most people might agree with me, so maybe it's not that hot, but I think Diego Larry should retire wherever he wants to um, retire. Oh God, that's the coldest take ever. Even if he, but even if he went to another MLS team, even if yeah. for some reason he said, you know, I want to stay in MLS and I'm not useful for the. I'm not going to play for the Timbers anymore because it's in the future. And at that point, he's not playing anymore. And mm-hmm. he, even if he went to another MLS team um, and decided to retire, another Western Conference opponent, even I don't think it even matters. I, I think no matter where Diego Valeri uh, retires, I, I, I think that we should build a statue of him outside of Providence Park, and he's going to go down as you know the number one player in Timbers MLS history Ooh, to this point. Ooh, as much as I love Diego Valeri, I think I'm in Camp Chara. See, Chara. There, there was something hot there. I still think Diego Valeri. I mean, maybe it's unfair to Chara, but but I still think when you look at the mm-hmm. Timbers, Diego Valeri is probably going to be the player that comes to most people's minds when you think of the best signing in Timbers MLS history. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, that, I think that'll be the consensus if we ever like polled fans or polled people yeah. around the league. But just in you know, my p- opinion that the two extra years Chara has here and the, just what he did to define the culture, I think that's, that's something that you know, just weighs on me a little bit more. Um, hot take. Jamie challenged me to do a soccer hot take this week, and I couldn't come up with one. Oh, my gosh. So I'm going to talk about my second favorite sport. You know, I, I imagine a lot of people who listen to this show are Trailblazer fans. And if you are a Trailblazer fan, ever since he emerged as Dame Lillard's co-pilot, you've probably been debating whether the Trailblazers should trade C.J. McCollum. And for most of the time, the answer to that was pretty much, I think, no, they shouldn't, because we didn't quite know what the tandem of Dame Lillard and CJ could do together. I have to say, this year, I am fully converted to team trade CJ McCollum. I just think that, particularly this year, where it just seems like he's a little bit off playing so many minutes with Dame, whereas they used to stagger those two guys a little bit, playing so many minutes with Dame just seems to be putting him in a situation of diminishing returns, I think they should trade C.J. McCollum. Now, there was a trade that was written about last week, I believe on The Ringer, trading C.J. McCollum for a power forward from Orlando named Aaron Gordon. I think that would be great. Aaron Gordon is a athletic power forward, can guard multiple positions, can jump out of the gym. I think a lot of people maybe remember him from his dunk contest pursuits. I just think and I this might be a hot take just because people in Portland might have an allegiance to CJ. I just think it's time to give Dame some different tools to try to win with. It's the most uh, non-soccer talk we've had on the show since... Uh, since the great baseball debates of 2017. Since the great baseball debates of 2017. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's get back to talking about soccer because I'm pretty sure everybody would rather hear and talk about the Thorns than talk about my various NBA takes. So yeah. let's talk about some Thorns news that you were able to confirm last week, something that uh, we've known for a little bit. And I think actually people should have been able to figure out before you conf- confirmed yeah. it. But we even <laughs> talked about it on the show last week how... There is no universe now where the description that Gavin Wilkinson gave of the impending signing for the Thorns doesn't fit. Dagny Brynja's daughter. 
Dagny Vrinya's daughter. <laughs> so go ahead and go ahead and talk about this, Jamie, since you were the first person to confirm. Yeah, um, I mean it's been out there. So um, that the Thorns were going to bring back a player, a former player um, that had been on the roster before, a former European player that had been on the roster before. Nadia Nadim had already signed elsewhere. Veronica Bocat had already signed elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It was pretty clear that it was getting down to Dagny, but I was able to confirm it last week. Um, so Dagny's coming back, and I think this could potentially uh, be a really big move for the Thorns. She obviously uh, missed last year uh, because of pregnancy, um, and so I think that's going to be something we'll have to see, you know, in terms of her fitness and where she's at when she comes in. Um, but given sort of what she was able to do for the Thorns uh, two years ago and, and the year before that, I think especially with the World Cup, because Iceland isn't going, this is kind of what I've been, uh, you know, obsessing over, how they need somebody else um, in the attack, another, another good player, especially the one that's not going to go away to the World Cup. I think this could be a really op- a big option for the Thorns, especially during that time. I think it's I, – I don't know what to think of this because – uh, this is something that the organization has known was going to happen for quite some time, clearly since the middle of December when Gavin Wilkinson talked about it on TV. So I, I, there's no thought in my mind of even what it, what it was like to remember what I heard that Dagny Brynjörnsdóttir was going to come back. Like even during the season, there was talk in the club just like, oh yeah, she she would be here because they wanted to bring her back after the 2017 season, and then she got pregnant. She's taken she's taken the year off. Um, so I. I guess I don't really have even a reaction to this anymore, but I do have a feeling as to, well, Donna's question, which followed up. And I think it should be said that Porkchop really loved Dagny too. So uh, we got to let him have his say. (laughs) But um, Donna, one of our most loyal and uh, best listeners and constant questioner, really helps fuel this part of the show. Donna asks, uh, where is Dagny in terms of fitness, et cetera, after her pregnancy? I noticed she wasn't on the roster for Iceland or their game against Scotland Monday. You talked about this a little bit for some Instagram sleuthing that you have done to keep track of Dagny Brino's daughter's fitness. What have you learned from your nefarious yeah. hovering over her <laughs> Instagram video? Yeah, I, I mean, I can't say where she is in terms of how she's going to look on the field uh, against other professional athletes. She's going to look tall. Um, <laughs> but she, I, I don't think I've ever, you know, noticed someone that's pregnant work out as much as she has. I, I mean, just based on Instagram, it seems like she spent the off season staying in as best shape as she possibly could while also, you know, going through her pregnancy and having her baby and everything. But even now, I I mean, she's posted so many videos and photos of her just at the gym or or working out or outside or um, on the field or things like that. So she's definitely put in the work. Um, You know, pregnancy affects different people in different ways. And so I I think this is going to be a wait and see thing, but it's not going to be from a lack of work from uh, Dagny. I wrote about this a little bit, um, you know, and something that's going to come out here this week, hopefully, um, in that we just don't know until she's here. Like, we can look at the Instagram videos and tell that she's in shape, but that's different than soccer shape. That's different than um, just having your touch back to where it was, your movement, et cetera. Aerobically, are you you there? Are you able to handle the sprinting and the coasting, the sprinting and the coasting of of a soccer game? So... It's it's just really kind of very, very rampant speculation for us to comment on it. But I think, you know, these are the same questions that the Thorn staff is going to have or does have. And the fact that the team is willing to sign her or has been willing to sign her in spite of this really should tell people the impression that she made on Mark Parsons and the staff in terms of mentality and attitude while she was here. Mark Parsons talks about it all the time, the fit, the cultural fit. The fact that Dagny Brynjörnsdóttir is going to be the first confirmed signing this offseason, and she hasn't played in a year, should tell you a lot about what they think about her ability to come in and fit in with what Mark Parsons has created. I think the other big news uh, from since we last recorded, we were big talking news. about this. Big, big news. <laughs> Haley Rosso played soccer in a game, in a real game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, Haley Rosso is back in the field. Uh, how excited are you about this? I'm relieved. I'm relieved for her yeah. because there clearly was a mental aspect <gasps> to having an injury that scared you, that comes so suddenly, that hurts that bad that is impossible to gauge from the outside. And the only gauge we have on it is how long it took Haley to get back to the field. So the fact that she has gotten to this place and overcome uh, 
a very, very reasonable hurdle should remind us that there's there's a lot more than just the physical that goes into these injuries. So I'm really happy for her, and I'm hoping she'll be able to hit the ground running when she returns here in a, a month, a month and a half. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that there's still a month, a month and a half before uh, preseason begins for the Thorn, it's, Thorns is a good sign in terms of timing and where she could potentially be at at the start of the season. Um, obviously, you know, for her, there's also the World Cup. And this, the recovery isn't over at this point. She still has to not just play a few minutes off the bench. She has, has to get back to being able to play a full game and full fitness and up to where she was before. So I think there's a lot of questions, and this was a really, really tough injury. Um, but, yeah, to see this you know, first hurdle, to see her get over that, you know, not this first hurdle, but first hurdle in terms of um, being on the field, um, it's really, really good news uh, because, yeah, I don't think we really knew what this uh, recovery was going to look like uh, when, when the injury happened. Absolutely. And her life is going to be very interesting over the next five months. Obviously, she's on a team that has high expectations going to France this summer. And it's a team that just replaced their coach, Alan Stodzic, from the Australian national team was let go by their federation last week. And it really seemed like the Matildas had almost hit a wall over these last four or five months. And from the outside, from the distance, this looks like their federation hitting a reset on it. But I think it's also a statement of intent that they they really believe that they can compete in France this summer. And anybody who looks at their roster has to believe yeah. the same thing. <laughs> but the fact that they seem to be adrift at sea forced them to change their captain how that affects Haley Rosso, how that affects Caitlin Ford or Ellie Carpenter remains to be seen. Caitlin Ford's kind of the most established of those players in the squad. It's kind of hard to imagine an Australia best 11 without her. Ellie Carpenter has been a, a constant starter for, I don't know, eight months, a year now. Haley Rosso's place is a little bit different. She's played attack. She's played right back at times. And now she's coming off this injury. So she's she's got a couple of fights ahead of her yeah. in, in the coming months. U.S. Women's National Team news, uh, one to nothing victory today over Spain, but a 3-1 to one loss yeah. over France this weekend. Uh, Emily Sonnet, Lindsay Horan getting starts. Adriana French leaves <laughs> this week with zero international caps. Uh, we saw Tobin Heath play today against Spain. Anything we should learn from these two games that they had in Europe? To be honest with you, I've... I'm done taking women's national team friendly seriously. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think it's disappointing to see them lose to France, uh, especially in their lead up to the World Cup. I, I mean, that's they're 10 games out. They have plenty of time. That doesn't mean that they're going to lose to France at the World Cup. But it, it certainly, if anything, is a little bit of a wake up call that the other teams are coming for them. This is not going to be something um, that they're just going to coast through. I, I think the national team knows that. Um, but it's just that reminder for a team that had, was on, um, you know, the winning streak they were on. Now that they're playing better competition, uh, they have to play better as well. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I'm disappointed that France wasn't in there. Uh, it sounds like Heath was out for the France game due to some sort of injury. She was back today, so that was good to see. Because yeah. anytime you hear Tobin Heath an injury, the the anxiety just uh, <laughs> begins. Wow. <laughs> I mean, look, she's had a lot of big injuries um, over the last few years, and, and the last thing you want to think about is any potential injury. Literally the in. last thing I want to think about. I want to change the topic <laughs> on this now. I don't want to talk about Tobin Heath's pseudo injuries because thankfully she was healthy enough to play yeah. for well, Spain. Spain so, that's nice. so that's, I guess, yeah, not much of a talking point, which is good. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, these are friendlies. And there's time. And look, all of the U.S. players are out of season right now, and all of the European players are in season. I mean, this is like last year when the North Carolina Courage was, even with their depleted team, just, you know, they were able to beat Leon because Leon was in preseason and the North Carolina Courage were in the middle of their season. I mean, th- these are big differences. Yeah. Like we saw today, that as much talent as there was out there on the Timbers field today, those guys would probably get waxed by a lot of players right now because they're not ready to play games. and. The women's national team clearly isn't in complete first day of yeah. preseason mode, but they're out of season right now. The France players, because of the Division Feminine season, is in season. And so that's at least an explanation for that. Other news here, something that touches on you know a topic that's close to your heart. I know you like to keep track <laughs> of these type of things. Amanda Duffy essentially got a type of promotion. Um, she's now the president of the NWSL. We also got some... Little bit more explanation as to why there isn't a commissioner in the NWSL. Spoiler alert, the league doesn't feel like that role is really needs to be filled, that all everything's being taken care of in other ways. Um, 
for you, does the new title that Amanda W has change anything? And uh, why is the commissioner now the title a thing of the past? Yeah, I... I mean, I don't know necessarily why the NWSL didn't just call her commissioner. Yeah, um, it seems like it semantics, seems, right? It, at this point, it's semantics. It, given that we've had this commissioner search for two years, I think it would have just been easier to name her commissioner. It certainly would have uh, been cleared up the timelines a yeah, little bit. Uh, I, mean, I think that's one of the weird things. Like I, um, and I, you know, this is an opinion I've held before joining the Thorns. Like I see everybody going on, like, why isn't there a commissioner? Why isn't there a commissioner? The league has decision makers in place that did the same thing that Jeff Plush did. Now it's not Amanda's role. isn't the exact same as Jeff Plush's was, but the idea that anything in the league is or isn't it happening because there isn't a commissioner is just weird. I just, I, I should have made this my hot take, but I just think it's like this, this big, I don't know, red herring, mis, not misnomer, misnomer is wrong, but it, it's this weird thing where instead of asking like who makes the decisions, people have just been saying, why isn't there a commissioner? And I think if they were asking the former question, they would have known that the decisions are being made by Amanda Duffy. And there's a, there's, there's, um, there are now boards in place to handle other things. But all of the things that Jeff Plush was doing are being handled. Yeah. I, I mean, yes. But I also think the NWSL could do a better job being clear about yeah. that. And, and they, I mean, this is essentially a title change without much of a change of a title role. So, yeah. you know, she's basically been commissioner or president of NWSL or whatever you want to call it for, almost since Jeff Plush left. Obviously, she got thrown into that position at that point, and, and there was probably some time where there was a, they really were going to look out for a commissioner um, potentially to replace uh, Jeff Plush before they realized they didn't need it. So her role has probably evolved a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I just feel like the NWSL could have been clearer about this uh, to begin with so to sort of uh, prevent this controversy, controversy, if you want to call it, or, or questions out there um, from even happening. So... For me, it's just, well, at least we have it settled. The NWSL is not hiring a commissioner. We can just call Amanda Duffy the head of the NWSL on whatever title you want to give her. Do you think that's going to stop the tweets? Probably not. Good. <laughs> Good. Everybody needs a brand. And if your brand is is name somebody commissioner, stick to your brand. Don't, don't let something like this get in your way, please. It's Twitter. Don't take it seriously. Speaking of not taking things seriously, Jamie, it's probably going to be a couple of weeks. Are we going to do a show next week? I think we're going to do a show next week. Yeah, I'm getting the Costa Rica dates confused. Yeah. So no, next week, the Timbers are still going to be here. And then um, I guess it will depend on news a little bit throughout preseason while they're gone yes. um, on what we do. But we'll, we'll definitely have a show next week. Um, but I think that's all. I think that's all we covered. need to cover for today. Um, hopefully, maybe we'll have some more news about designated players and right backs next week. Uh, we'll see. We don't know that we will. <laughs> we, we don't know, but uh, worst comes to worst, I should be able to give people updates on it at that point. So right. we'll see. We'll see. Well, until then, we're Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, Porkchop is chiming in. You can find us every week on Oregon Live, Timbers.com, or Stumptown Footy. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care. Yeah.